The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and I'm so excited to say that Jeff Kirkham is here with me today. He's a Master Sergeant, spent almost 29 years as a Green Beret, with over eight years boots on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq as a member of a Counterterrorism Direct Action Unit. He graduated from U.S. Army Ranger School, Special Forces Combat Dive School, U.S. Army Freefall School, and numerous other shooting, driving, and close-quarter combat schools. And he earned a bachelor's degree of science, wrote five books, and studied six foreign languages. Um, (laughs) No big deal. He's been a special agent with the DEA, invented the RAS tourniquet, and has several other utility patents, and created ReadyMan. He's the co-founder and head of product development at Black Rifle Coffee Company, a father and husband. So um, you've you've been you've been a little busy over uh, the past uh, several decades. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want any moss growing on the on the stone. So yeah, constantly constantly working on new and different stuff. And I'm a big believer in you know. There's no constant. I'm a big believer in you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're getting smarter or you're getting, you know, dumber. And so I, I, uh, constantly pushing that envelope. I love that. And that's, I mean, that's a huge, huge part of why I wanted to interview you because I, I was lucky enough to meet Jeff when he was speaking, um, and was just kind of blown away by everything he had to say. And, um, he was kind enough to agree to an interview when I randomly came up to him afterwards and asked if he might be, uh, he might be open to that. So, um, yeah. So anyways, where did this all start? How is it that, how is it that you've become who you are today? <laughs> Pure accident. <laughs> Pure. No, I, you know, I'm, I've been incredibly lucky, um, blessed, whatever you want to call it in life. Um, you know, a lot of it was right place, right time. Um, you know, and then there's certainly, there's always been a, you know, a high level of, uh, preparedness in that where, you know, when the opportunities came along, I was able to jump on them and take advantage of them. And so, um, you know, so, and, and, and a lot of it too is, um, you know, I, Inevitably, when you get hurt or you get knocked down, I've, I've always had the constitution to be able to get back up or to heal in such a way that I could keep uh, keep going. And so it's just been, um, you know, and then I just, that relentless, you know, I've got a relentless thirst for knowledge and, uh, you know, and just seeing the world. And so I've just, you know, I've been very lucky. I mean, I... You know, I can't attribute it to any one thing. You know, I come from a good family. You know, I come from a big family. I'm number seven out of nine kids. Um, oh, wow. So we, you know, we grew up, you know, relatively, in a, you know, relatively, uh, you know, modest um, upbringing. You know, my dad was in the Air Force, and so we moved every three or four years. And, 
you know, I was very used to, you know, getting hand-me-downs from my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, for, you know, for clothes or for toys or any of that stuff. So, you know, I think all of that um, contributed to later on to, you know, who I am today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so how did, I mean, okay, so where exactly did you grow up then? Well, I, I, I actually, I grew up all over the United States. So we moved every two or three years because my dad would get transferred. Um, by the oh, time I came along, my dad was a little bit later in his career. He had done 27, he ended up doing 27 years in the Air Force. Um, and so I was towards the tail end of his career in the Air Force. And so we, I, you know, I grew up all over and, and that actually, that helped quite a bit because it taught me how to make new friends and, and, um, and get along with my family members and, and all of that. So that, that definitely contributed to it. And I spent my high school years here in Utah. And, um, so that was, you know, the last three years, three or four years that I was here. And then as soon as I graduated high school, then boom, I was, I was out the door and, um, started, you know, started my military career that, you know, essentially led me to where I'm at today. Did your dad's career have a big impact on your decision to uh, to enlist? It, it did. He actually is an Air Force guy. Of course, he wanted me to be a pilot, and um, and I was like, nah, I want to be a Green Beret. You know, when I was in the third grade, there was a guy that lived down the street. We lived on a small army depot here in Utah, as a matter of fact, and um, um, there was a guy that lived down the street. And he he had been a Green Beret in Vietnam, and at that time, oh, wow. Vietnam really wasn't that long ago. You know, we're talking like 1980, you know, 1983 or something. And so, you know, Vietnam was like 10 years, you know, it ended just barely 10 years prior to that, not even 10 years prior to that. And so, um, you know, 1975, so we're talking like eight years, you know, prior to Vietnam, it ended. Mm-hmm. There's this guy who lives down the street and he just, he just kind of, uh, made an impression on me. I like the military anyways, you know, because probably because of my dad and probably, you know, it's in my DNA, but, um, you know, and then I met this, met this guy and spoke to him. I, you know, his son would, and I were friends and, um, and so I was from the, essentially from the third grade on, let's see, was I in the third grade or, um, you know, third or fourth grade on, uh, I was like, you know what, I want to, I want to be a Green Beret, and so that that is literally, you know, my entire life was like, I want to, want to be a Green Beret when I grow up, and so that's that's what I did. What was it that attracted you to being a Green Beret more than more than being in the Air Force? You know, I, I think it was, you know, growing up, you're always like my my, you know, everybody at least every boy, I, I can't speak for girls, but every boy has got like a superhero that they gravitate towards. And so, you know, my superhero was always Batman because I always thought it was cool that out of all the superheroes, he was the only one that didn't have any superpowers. He just had a, you know, very keen intellect and, and a, uh, and a driving force behind him. So that with me, I always kind of equated that, whereas, like, here's a guy that, you know, worked with his hands and feet and, you know, in his mind, uh, um, you know, using technology. And, and I guess maybe back then I just equated that more to being like the Green Beret and less the, 
being like a pilot. Now, now I will say, like, fast forward, you know, 25 years later, sitting out on the desert in Afghanistan um, with, you know, hadn't showered in a week and a half and had been running ambushes and, and uh, um, you know, looking up in the sky and seeing a, a plane flying past. And I remember vividly thinking, wow, you know what? Maybe I should have listened to my dad. <laughs> I've been a pilot. That That is very fair. Um, so then, so you enlisted and at that point were you, were you 18 when you were, when you enlisted? No, so I, I actually, I, I had a, I had a very non-typical, um, experience with the military and, and you probably couldn't even replicate it today. Um, so I, I actually, I joined when I was 17 and, um, and I joined the, I started off in the National Guard and just as luck has it, um, 19 Special Forces Group is right here in Utah. And, um, and I was living in Utah at the time. And, um, anyways, I joined when I was 17 years old. So I actually, I went to basic training and jump school. So I went to jump school even before I went to advanced individual training, infantry school. 11 Bravo, I, I went to jump school between my junior and senior year of high school. So oh, I, I finished my junior year, you know, jumped on a, jumped on a plane, and I think it was like the first time I'd ever flown, even, and uh, jumped on a plane and flew to, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, went to basic training, and then, um, um, went, went to Fort Benning, where I went to jump school, and then came home, and I was actually, you know, and my, my recruiter, I had a great recruiter, um, you know, and another, that's one of those instances where I say, I, you know, there's a fair amount of luck in there. I, I had a fantastic recruiter. The guy was, um, I mean, his name is Chuck Rackham. I still talk to him to this day, 30 years later. And I, you know, we talked cool. every once in a while. And um, he actually, back then, you know, there was no internet. There was, I mean, computers were, I mean, green screen DOS things, you know, and so, he essentially, like, you know, put together some paperwork to make it so that I could go to jump school, but, you know, right after basic training, which was normally you just flat out can't do that. And so, anyways, he, he you know, put this paperwork together, pulled some favors, got me in there, and then um, um, went to, uh, you know, went to jump school. So here I come back. But it's actually a week or two late starting my senior year. And, um, but, you know, that was okay. And, um, and then jumped out of school. So here I am, you know, I've got a shaved head and I'm walking around high school and I'm, you know, knowing what I know now, it's like, I didn't know anything. But back then it was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a United States Army paratrooper. You know, I'm a, I'm a bad mofo. And so, uh, <laughs> um, um, and, and then, so then I graduated my, you know, went through my senior year and, um, and then essentially, like, I had about a week or two, not even a, two weeks, after I graduated high school, and um, boom, I took off. I went to infantry school, 11 Bravo, and then back then, the, it, right now, it's called the 18 X-ray program. Back then, it was called the Rep 63, and um, and so I went straight to special forces school. So I was 18 when I went to special forces school, and it's, the training is long enough that... Um, I graduated when I was 19, so March 1989 is when I is when I graduated the Special Forces Q course, 
And that, that in and of itself, I mean, there's a very, very low at that time, and it's probably still true today, very low percentage of people that go straight into, um, um, go straight into, uh, special forces school pass, especially if you're young, you know, because you just, mm-hmm. there's so many, there's so many obstacles that you're trying to overcome at the time because, you know, you're, you're talking radical differences and, um, you know, lifestyle and stress and, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, I, I, and I just had the good sense to keep my mouth shut. I had been, you know, I'd been an Eagle Scout, so I had a bunch of, you know, outdoor skills already underneath my belt, um, that helped tremendously. And, um, kept my mouth shut, listened to the other guys that were the senior guys and, um, passed, made it through, uh, first time and, and, um, Wow. And there you have it. So that in and of itself is really, really impressive. How, how was it going through there? Like, was there ever a moment where you felt like, Oh shit, this is, this is the real deal and this is intense. Cause that's not an easy course to go through. Yeah. I mean, yeah, every day, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, every day. I mean, I, I was having a, you know, I was having a blast though. I was, you know, I've always been physically fit and, and I was having a blast, but there were definitely a few times that, um, where it was just like, holy cow, I may not, I may not pass this thing. And, um, you know, and you just keep, you know, keep your eyes on the, what we like to say, we keep our eyes on the five meter target and just knock down those close end targets. If you start thinking about all of them, um, at once, it'll, it'll just psychologically eat you up. So you just keep, keep chugging away at those, at those close end targets and, and chip away at it. And so that's, you know, that's essentially what I, you know, what I did. You know, when back then in special forces, there, there was no selection back then. You just showed up and it was, it was phase one, two, and three. And they've since modified that now. And, and it's, and it's probably, it, it, it's without a doubt for, for better than what it was back then. And, and so, but, um, you know, we started with, um, let's see, we started with about 350, 370 candidates in phase one. And by the end of phase one, we were down to, I believe, like 70. So we had lost wow. um, the vast majority of the class. And then as, and that was just phase one. And then as we continued through training, you know, we lost, you know, lost a few more. Phase one was was always the biggie that would get people. Now they now they um, bump a bunch of people in the, in selection. But you know, for me as a 18 year old kid, it's very sobering to see these grown men who were experienced uh, soldiers in the military not making it through the training. And the and the vast majority of you know, the vast majority of them, it wasn't that they weren't strong enough, smart enough, fast enough. It was that they they quit. And mm-hmm. so and I guess either you could say that I was too dumb to quit or, you know, I was resilient enough not to quit. I mean, you know, but uh, so that was that was actually was a big learning um, thing for me early on in life, too, was it was like, hey, it doesn't matter how big and strong you are or what unit you come from. Um, what matters is, are you, are you going to persevere? Are you going to keep pushing through? Are you going to, you know, make sure that you're you're successful and not going to quit? Yeah. Man. 
that's that's a great learning experience to have so early in your career. And that's just, I mean, that's just a really big deal, too, going from, you said 300 to 70 in the first, not selection, but in the, what did you call it, the first? Phase phase one. Phase, so it was phase, phase one. Phase one, phase two, phase three. And we actually, we had like, we started with actually like 350. And then uh, we've traded down to about 70 um, by the end of phase one. And then by the end of the third phase, like how many were you down to? You know, I, I don't know because you'd have guys that would, um, your, your class, you, you'll have some people that will get recycled because they'll, they'll fail some stuff and they'll make them do phase two or phase three again. And so, so you're losing people, but you're picking up people from past classes that, that kind of keep your numbers consistent. But, um, um, that makes sense. Yeah, so it, it's you know I have no idea to to tell no, you the truth. That's totally fair. Um, so then, where where did you go from there? So um, funny enough, I I left working as a, or I came back came back home from the Q course, and uh, two months later I was um, on my way to Korea, where I worked as a missionary for. For a few years, and um, so I did the uh, I did the exact inverse of of uh, of what I guess you would call normal. So I did a whole bunch of commando training and stuff, and then I took off and lived in uh, in Asia for a while. And that's where, and essentially, that was my first real language that I'd studied. I'd studied Spanish in um high school a little bit and um but then living in Korea, um a couple of the cities I lived in, I think I was the only American there. And so wow. you know, so I learned uh learned Korean while I was there. At one point in my life I was actually pretty stinking good at Korean, but I mean you forget over the years. But um so that's as soon as I finished that I, you know, went over there and that was a tremendous learning experience as well as you know, learning another language, learning another language, I, I would encourage absolutely every single person that they should try and learn or study another language because right off the, right off the bat, it doubles your vocabulary. But then the other thing is too, in, in other languages, there's, there's expressions and phrases and words that just don't exist in your native language. And so what it does is it, it, it pushes you to think in different ways. Um, which mm-hmm. I think helps round out um, helps round out you know brain development and and all of that and so um, so and, and then of course you're experiencing another culture and other foods and you know and the hardship and frustration that goes on with that and so it's a tremendous uh, you know learning thing and then having been you know working as a religious missionary then you know it's you really, you know, it helps you to understand the softer, softer side and the building the rapport and relationships of trust and all of that. That, that later on, you know, fast forward, somebody once asked me, you know, they said, "Hey, what, what do you think the single biggest contributing factor to you surviving, you know, so many years in the counter-terrorist unit?" And I was like, without a doubt, it was having having been a missionary was was a was probably the single biggest thing because I learned how to get along with people that thought, you know, absolutely different than I did. 
And so, mm-hmm. and later on, living, you know, as a, you know, as two, three, four Americans surrounded by, you know, 200 to 500 Afghans, you know, you've, you've got to be able to build those relationships of trust and, and, and the level of rapport so that you, you know, so you don't get, well, so they don't kill you. Oh, definitely. Was it ever, um, uh, let's see, I hope this isn't a rude question to be asking, but, um, so, well, let me first preface it with this. Um, are you still active in the LDS church today? No, uh, no, I, I, I stopped going to church. I mean, I'm, I'm religious. I mean, I believe in, you know, I believe in God and all of that. I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm religious, but I don't practice religion, if that makes sense. And so, oh, I mean, yep. I, I, I stopped going to church, uh, you know, probably 20 some years ago. Um, okay. but throughout that, you know, I've studied, you know, I've read, you know, the Old Testament multiple times, the New Testament. I've read, you know, the Buddhist Bible and I've read the Quran multiple times and, um, you know, I, I mean, I even read the uh, the Moonies. If you uh, Reverend Moon over in South Korea, I read his read his book. You know, I've read a bunch of the Apocrypha um, from the Catholic, a bunch of the lost books uh, that have been discovered since since it you know since they've started surfacing here recently in the last you know couple of decades, decade or two decades, and so. Um, you know, part of that is, is continuing to expand, you know, my knowledge base. But, um, so to answer your question, no, I, you know, I, I, I stopped going just simply for, for other reasons. Not that, not that I became a, an apostate or a non-believer. It was, it was just one of those things where it's my, my, uh, perspective on religion and what I thought what I thought was important and what I thought God thought was important uh, mm-hmm. just kind of changed. And so I was like, yeah, all right. I think, you know, my personal belief is, you know, one, I, I think God is more worried about who we are as human beings rather than if you show up to a building every week. Um, and I think, you know, someday when I stand in front of the big man, he's going to he's gonna go, hey, were you a good person or not? And so, and I, I think that's really, and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a, you know, or, you know, whoever, a Catholic. I don't think, I don't think at the end of the day that, you know, the, the big man in the sky is really going to care about all that so much as what you did is a, you know, what did you do as a human being? I've, I've known, I've known pagans that, that like literally believed in, you know, magic and all kinds of stuff that were absolutely, you know, salt of the earth, good people. And I've known super religious Christians that were absolutely horrid people. And uh, so, and that's where it's just that for me, it's like, you know, I, I think if God is just and he's fair, then then he has to look at me objectively as well as in, in my life. So... Kind of a long no, that, answer to your question. No, you ended up actually, it was a perfect answer because you answered my initial question and then you also answered the question I was worried was going to be rude. So it's it's all perfect, actually. Um, so I was going to ask how it, you know, 
how it was for you being LDS and also being in the military and how that kind of affected things, but you just answered that beautifully. So that was perfect. Um, and let's see. So from there, you got back from, from your mission and how was it going back into, into the military? Cause those are two very different worlds. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, it was another switch. Right. And so, right. um, but it, it was it was fine. I mean, it, it literally wasn't uh, you know wasn't necessarily that big of a deal. I guess when you're young, you adapt quickly and easily, right? And so true. And Especially also with your you, background. Yeah, and, and I think if you you know if you if you don't have any preconceived notions about the way that things should be or what you think they should be, you're just taking it as it comes. Then all of a sudden, it makes things a lot easier. So. It was like, well, okay, because I came home and immediately went on active duty. And so I was on active duty all throughout the 90s um, up in the uh, first Special Forces group. And so that's where, um, you know, I and, and I had a blast. I mean, that was like really working in a team and, as a, you know, as a Green Beret and traveling overseas and working with other cultures as well as working with, you know, other other guys on an ODA and operational detachment. And so... Um, it, it was good. It was great. It was a great learning experience. Was there um, was there a particular deployment that really stood out for you during that time as a deployment that impacted you the most, that you learned the most from? You know, I think probably throughout all of that, the, the biggest deployment that sticks out of my head was would have been Haiti. So back then in the 90s, Aristide had just taken control of Haiti back then. Haiti was, uh, you know, we, we essentially did a, a soft invasion in Haiti, um, because the, the murder rates were through the roof and, and, um, the place had just become a cesspool. And so, you know, I was down there for, uh, six months for uphold democracy. And so, um, we're down there working with a, bang, a battalion of Bangladeshi soldiers. As, and then um, about halfway through deployment, we switched over and we were working with a battalion of Nepalese soldiers. So very different, uh, very different. So the Bangladeshis are Muslim, and so they would have to call the prayer every morning and all of that. And then we had the uh, the Nepalese, who were essentially pagans, and um, um, they, you know, and they were they would sacrifice a goat every month to uh, you know their their god of war, and so. You know, very different, um, very different um, uh, peoples, but both of them had, you know, great people in their in their units. But Haiti definitely sticks out. Haiti was, you know, I was still pretty young at the time. I was 25 or something like that. And, and um, you know, downtown, we we had downtown Port-au-Prince was where we started, and uh, Sykes Away uh, was the area as well as the port. And it was just, I mean. Get that area looked like it had gone through an artillery strike. I mean, it had, but it just looked that way. Um, the people were incredibly poor. There was no electricity. There was no running water. It was open sewage in the streets. There was garbage everywhere. There was, you know, essentially they were picking up bodies out of the streets every, you know, every morning. Um, they had thugs that were running around murdering people, um, you know, so we were patrolling through the, through the streets at night trying to trying to 
catch them or at least keep them from going around with these thugs, these gangs that were going around. What uh, the president, I can't remember, that was before Aristide, who got overthrown, had essentially picked up, you know, given a bunch of guns to gangs to essentially try and enforce his will. So they were like an adjunct to his police force. And so with these, you know, and there's these gangs of young men. And, of course, what they do is they just go around and rape and rob and murder um, wholesale. And so it was absolutely horrendous. And and um, so, you know, as far as, like, stuff that probably affect me, you know, on during that thing the most, yeah, I'd say it, it definitely has been the Haiti, uh, the Haiti deployment. Oh, definitely. And did that, I mean, how did, how did you process that? Did that just give, add more fuel to the fire for you in regards to why, why you were doing what you were doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, Special Forces motto is Deo Presso Liber, which means liberate the oppressed. And so, you know, you, you always have that kind of in the, in the back of your head, I guess, or at least I did. And while we're down there and it definitely was like, hey, we're trying to, trying to help these people, but you're constantly trying to fight off, you know, a jaded mentality as well. Um, you know, because you can imagine the people that were living there, the Haitians that were living through that, you know, of course, all of the, the violence and the poverty was affecting them as human beings as well, too. And sometimes they weren't as, you know, sometimes they just weren't, you know, up to the standard of kind of what you, you know, you have this ethnocentric view of, what you think culture and civilization and civility should be, and then all of a sudden you're exposed to a culture that is going through that, and, and you know, and through you throw in a heavy dose of survival mode, and human beings start doing things that we can perceive as being, you know, and they're good people, you know, and I'm talking about the good people, I'm not even talking about the bad ones, but even the good ones sometimes do stuff that you're just like, man, I totally don't understand why you do it that way. That doesn't make any sense, but Right. You know, again, that's that that whole thought process of like understanding other cultures and and saying, okay, it may not be my way of doing things, but it's definitely a way that of doing things that is working for these people. Absolutely, absolutely, because you walked into a obviously completely different world than you'd ever been in before. It sounds like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely different world. Was there ever was there ever a deployment during that time that was the opposite, where you you looked at the you know you looked at the commands you were given and you looked at the you know the locals in the area and you just felt like this this isn't the way to do this I don't I don't agree with what with what I'm needing to do here. No, during during that time, no. No, every, essentially everywhere that we went and the different deployments, you know, we're, you know, everybody's genuinely trying to help. You know, we'd work closely with other militaries. You know, in special forces, we like to call ourselves force multipliers. And what that means is it's a small team that will go in and lead, train, and advise um, local indigenous forces. And so... Essentially, like a regular special forces team would, you know, 12, 12 guys would, would essentially be mentoring, lead training, and advising like 50 uh, indige forces. So you could replace those. So fast forward, when I was in the, when I was in the counter-terrorist unit, 
we we went smaller with the Americans. We had a smaller footprint and a much larger indigenous force, like in Afghanistan. And so what that would allow us to do, though, is for every Afghan commando that we had, we were replacing five Americans. So you can quickly do the math. It's an mm-hmm. incredibly cost-effective way of, you know, pushing the ball down the field, on, you know, for the global war on terror. So... Um, oh, and so we worked with, you know, the, the Koreans and the Thais and the Filipinos and the, you know, Indonesians and the Malays and the, you know, just on, we, in first special forces group where I, you know, essentially started, we had Asia was our area of emphasis or area of focus. Was it ever difficult to, to gain the local trust? Oh yeah, sure. Because there are all, you know, there's always, there's always a level you don't know, you know, special forces has got its fair share of knuckleheads too. And so you don't, you know, sometimes teams that would get there before you had, you know, caused problems or, you know, done things incorrectly. And so it, in some cases, alienated the local guys. So it kind of, you know, kind of look at you a little bit until you could win over their, you know, win over their trust. And and also working with other countries' special operations, you're talking about like a group of type A's meeting with a group of type A's, so there's always, you know, like dogs sniffing butts. There's always a little bit <laughs> that, that kind of goes on too. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that would happen from time to time. But, you know, pretty soon, genuine genuineness pushes through and, and um, yeah. you know, and you win them over. Oh, absolutely. What was it like for you being one of the younger guys on the team? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I, so I was, I was a much younger guy that was on the team. And so, you know, I was on a, a combat dive team. I mean, combat dive teams are, are very type A centric teams, very type A. Teams. I, I mean, I don't know what they're like now, but back then it was because there was only one dive team per company, so you had three per battalion, and um, and they they were very. I mean, it was. I used to say that it was like working with a pack of wolves. You know, it's like they'd all work together against other people, and but if there was nobody else to work against, then they would start turning on each other and start yipping and snapping at each other, and so. It was, it, you know, it, it was, it was, it was interesting. And so, you know, with that, it, it's, it, you know, it's this constant evolution of, you know, getting better and and trying to, you know, maintain that. And as a young guy on the team, so the young pup on the team, you know, you're constantly, you're you're constantly getting tested by the older guys. And so, yeah, it was. I mean, again. The, Another great learning thing. You know, what we used to do is we'd we'd have PT in the morning, physical training, right? So we'd get in and we'd go for runs and do push-ups and sit-ups and all that stuff. And so what we'd do is we'd get in a circle. And this was every morning. So, like, the thing of, like, easy day and hard days and stuff, that didn't exist. That It was, like, every day was, like, crush each other day. And so we did... <laughs> You know, we'd go out for a run that was really like a long sprint, and then we'd come back because everybody's in fantastic shape. You know, I had a guy on my team. He could run two miles in 10 minutes and 50 seconds. No and so, way. 
Yeah. And oh so, you know, and everybody, I was the slowest guy on the team, and I could do two miles in, like, 12 minutes, 10 seconds. Everybody else was down in the 11 minutes something, and then, you know, and then Nate could do it in 10.50. And so, um or 10.30, and so, you know, just screaming, you know, and, and there was another guy that was on a dive team. He would walk up to the start line smoking a cigarette, put the cigarette down, run his two miles in about 11 minutes and 30 seconds, come back, pick up the cigarette, start smoking again. And so, <laughs> so it was like the old, old school, you know, military and um and so anyways, you know, as a young guy you're you were constantly getting tested by, you know, the older guys. So we'd form this circle in the morning to do PT and essentially would each person could pick an exercise and the repetitions for that how many repetitions you're gonna do for that exercise. So of course everybody would pick the one exercise that they were really good at so that they could absolutely mortally crush everybody else that was in the circle and so um, you know, and this was like every single day. <laughs> so, yeah. Man, it sounds intense, but that also that does sound like fun, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely it built character. I mean, it, it yeah. definitely built character. Oh, definitely, definitely. I have a a friend of mine, another another guy that I interviewed, uh, James. He's He's Marsoc and he's he's on a deployment right now. And so um I while he's been gone I, I took his dog for a run, but he's used to running with James, who is more on the level you just talked about, not used to running with me, who's at not that level. And so we, you know, we go for a couple mile run and by the end of it I'm dead. And this dog is not even panting. So um yeah, you guys are definitely in a different echelon, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's there's some unbelievable athletes that exist, and you know, in the military, you know, and guys that you'll never, you know, you'll never hear about them, but just unbelievable um, athletic prowess. Oh, definitely. I mean, you were a Green Beret for almost 29 years. I mean, that's 29 years of being being an elite athlete. I mean, let's be honest. That's put your body through a lot. Yes, it does. Um, okay, so then, so then from there, how many, how many deployments did you go on in total? And, um, during that time or like mm -hmm. total when I, after I got into the CT unit? Just during that time. Jeez, I, I don't know. Quite a few. Um, a <laughs> couple of years, probably one or two a year. A couple of years. And then, and then what happened next? So so then I, I I got off of active duty and I went back to the National Guard and um um so went back to nineteenth group and um ended up getting hired, you know, went through it while I was on active duty. I worked on my you know, I was working on my degree and um you know, there was no online courses back then because there was no computers. I mean there was the internet essentially didn't exist. And so, you know, I was working on my degree. It was a non-traditional degree. Um, and so studying at night, studying on deployments while, you know, some of the buddies were going to bars and stuff like that. I was reading, you know, college textbooks and uh, writing papers. And so um, 
So I worked on my degree, so I got out and um, ended up going through a nasty divorce. And uh, throughout that, it was I ended up back in Utah, finished my finished my degree, and uh, applied for um, the DEA. And so, in the mix with that, I I got hired by a local sheriff's office down in Utah County, and so I worked at the correctional facility. I worked at the jail down there for a year, which was yet another tremendous education, and then um, got hired by DEA and was a special agent with the DEA for four years up in Seattle. How did you even have time to get married during all of those deployments? I mean, a couple deployments a year, that's, I mean, you're probably a home. <laughs> probably accounts for the marriage didn't last. Nope, that's that's fair. Um, how did you like how did you like working with the DEA? Uh it was a blast. I you know, it was I had a I had a phenomenal boss um that was there and um great fantastic mentor. Um he really gave us free reign on on working cases and um and, and he didn't. He would. He would step in if he thought we were doing something unsafe. But other than that, he would let us screw stuff up all the time. And um, it, you know, like cases and evidence and stuff. And and you know, we'd ask him, "Well, why didn't you stop us?" And you know, and he's like, well, "You're not going to learn anything if you guys don't make mistakes." He's like, "I'm not going to spoon feed this stuff to you." He's like, "I'm not going to let you do anything stupid." But mm-hmm. you, you've got to, the only way you're going to learn is if you go through the process and you make mistakes, because then you won't make those mistakes anymore. And, yeah. um, and, and so that was a great, you know, leadership management learning tenant for me, where it's just like, wow, that's, that's amazing. So when I was in DEA, I, I was actually, I was on what was called the mobile enforcement team. It was a program, it was called the MET group, mobile enforcement team group. Um, and so we would deploy, funny enough, it was very special forces-esque. We would deploy out to other law enforcement uh, communities, small, small all the way up to large. So it'd be city, you know, county, and even state. And we'd deploy around the Seattle division, where we would link up with these local groups. So what happened is, if if a, if a law enforcement entity had a violent drug offender problem, then what they would do is they would request the net group to come down and assist them. And so then we would get you know, the orders from above would come down and say, hey, you guys need to go down to, you know, Portland or Snohomish County or wherever and uh, help out the locals. So we'd go down there, we'd link up with those guys and gals. And um, with that, then we would augment. We'd come down. There was typically, there was about six agents in the group. Um, and we would come down. And it wasn't that we were any smarter than these guys were. It's just that we just... One, we had more resources. We had a lot of tech gear. We had, um, you know, money, um, as well as we had experience taking cases bigger and taking them further down the chain. So if you if you think about a drug case like cocaine, crack, um, or heroin, all of those are international cases by nature because we don't grow cocaine in the United States and we don't grow poppies in the United States for heroin. And so... Those are international cases, but most law enforcement can only take them so far, and then they just flat out don't have the money or resources to to track it. And and if you've never done it before, then they don't have the experience, and it becomes very difficult. So what we would do is, as long as the drug offenders that they had were violent, then we would deploy down there, and then 
um, we were also fresh faces. So at that point, I worked a ton of undercover. You know, I had long hair and, and earrings and would go around, and I was, you know, buying everything from ecstasy to heroin to crack to methamphetamine to, you know, marijuana. And, um, and, and so, it, and it was, it was, it was a, I had a blast doing it. I had a great team. I had a great boss. And, um, you know, and it was, it was like everything that I kind of imagined, you know, being a narcotics officer as being. And so it, it was, I mean, what can I say? I had a blast. Did you feel that your time as a Green Beret really impacted the way you were a DEA agent? Like, did it make it easier? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, like, DEA, especially on the net group, we're, um, you know, I wouldn't say we're, we, you know, DEA is a paramilitary organization. But, like, we, like, on the net group, we did all of our own warrants. And so we would we would transition over from doing in, in drug investigations to, you know, kicking down doors and, and arresting, uh, arresting bad guys. So, I mean, I did well over a hundred high-risk warrants while I was wow. with the DEA. Man, was there a particular, was there a particular instance that really, really stands out? Um, Well, that's a good question. You know, you, you know, it's probably, probably the funny, most sad instance that probably sticks out. We were, you know, I, I would, I was, uh, one of the guys that would teach new guys that were coming into the group how to breach doors, meaning how to use the ram or the sledgehammer or something like that. And so, anyways, um, this, this one instance, we were, we were hitting this door. And I told the guy, I was like, "Hey, here's where you need to hit the hit the ram on the door so that uh, so that it will go. Don't hit it in the center of the door. I'll just put the ram through the center of the door. You need to hit, you know, down on the side underneath the doorknob or whatever. And there's a there's a technique to using the ram, right? So right distance mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So, anyways, we we move up to the door, right? And and so I'm kind of in instructor mode." with this guy because he's watching. I was like, okay, I've shown you how to do it. Now I'm going to do it. And then after this, you're the, you're the Ram guy. And so I, I wind up and I swing the Ram and I, of course I hit the Ram in the center of the door. I, I completely miss, you know, the, one of those instances of like, okay, watch how cool I am. You know, I completely <laughs> screw it up. I hit the center of the door and the door was one of these ones that had different um, panes in it of not glass, but wood. So I hit this section of the door, not quite in the center, in, and um, like, you know, a, a four-inch by six-inch piece of the door dislodges, and I can see it fly down the hallway and, and hit the far, you know, far section of the hallway. And I stopped, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I just hit this exact, you know, it went through my head instantaneously. It was like, oh, my gosh, I just hit this door exactly where I told this guy not to <laughs> for the exact reason as to why you don't want to hit it in the center. You know, and then I wound up and I hit it right and the door opened up and we went in and made entry. So it was kind of one of those funny, you know, funny instances there. But And then it was also kind of the most sad was we went in there and uh, we were looking for heroin. It was a heroin dealer that had uh, stashed a bunch of his, his stuff that was in there. He was a heroin dealer. We later found that, you know, I want to say it was like two kilos of heroin in there. 
but the really sad thing was is there was hypodermic needles on the floor and stuff, and there was a little uh, one-and-a-half-year-old that was in there that was just completely neglected. And, you know, and there's needles on the floor, and she's crawling around, and so really tugging her heartstrings. No kidding. So what, like, what did, what did you do? Did you take her to... Um... Oh like yeah, so de- child protective yeah, services. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the the you know the next phone call. And do you do you have any idea what happened to her? No idea. Man, talk about a rough start. So, um, were there a lot of instances like that? Um, you know, from time to time, that was probably the worst or the most egregious. Um, you know, remember most of these guys that we were going after were violent drug offenders, so they didn't they didn't have kids where they were at, and right. so you know, just by nature where they're at. But every once in a while, you know, there there'd be kids, and um, but you know, that was probably the worst. You know, this little girl crawling around in absolutely filthy conditions with you know used needles, you know, on the floor and, you know, and, you know, it's just, you know, and towels with blood on them where they've been, you know, they shoot the the heroin and, and, you know, they bleed a little bit so they'd wipe it off on like a dish rag or something and just leave that on the floor. And and so, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't happen all that often because we were, you know, because of who we were targeting, but it's definitely is a, a, an aspect that, that's in the drug war, yeah. How did you process that? You know, I I think part of it is you just learn how to just go, man, that that sucks, and you just don't dwell on it, you know, or else it'll it'll eat you up. Oh, of course, yeah. Don't dwell on it, and then it sounds like you also just focus on like what you what you learned in becoming a Green Beret, just keep putting. One step in front of the other. Focus on the next, the next target. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, so how many years were you uh, a DEA special agent like, for? Like, like four. And then, where did you go from there? Well, then I, you know, I was still in special forces. I was in 19th Group up in Washington, and um, um, then the war kicked off. And so, you know, 9-11 happened, and um, and it looked like at that time, a lot of people don't remember this, but at that time, it looked like we were going to go into the Philippines as well as go into Afghanistan. And so um, we spun up and went to the Philippines as, you know, as a, an advisory force for, we were over there for a couple of months or something, and um and then, for whatever reason, the Philippines never really in Philippines never really materialized on the level of the global war on terror, kind of like the Middle East. So we we went over to the PI for you know Philippine Islands, went over there for a couple months, then came back, and then we got mobilized and went over for the invasion because then by then, you know, it, we were getting ready to invade um, Iraq, and so we went over in 2002. For the for the build up to the lead up for the invasion into Iraq, and so we were. Um, my team was one of the teams where 
we were patrolling the border between uh, Kuwait and um, uh, Iraq. And then um, we got pulled back, um, and then actually we infilled into Baghdad for the invasion on a, it was called a rapids infill. So we landed at Baghdad International Airport and, you know, drove our gun trucks and stuff off the back of the the uh, C-130. You know, the C-130 landed, slammed on the brakes, ramp went down, crew chief said, get out, um, drove off the back of the ramp and, about the time we were hitting the asphalt, the ramp was going back up, and the uh, C-130 was racing back down the the uh, airstrip so that other aircraft could land and dump other guys like us off. What was going through your mind in that moment when you guys hit the ground and the plane was leaving? You know, um, it was surreal because at that point, the armored division had already passed the uh, had passed by up the Baghdad International Airport. Um, they had they had already pushed past and and they were in Baghdad at that point. Baghdad was, you know, the plane left and all of a sudden it was quiet. And I looked over and, and there was this new technology of of three dimensionally being able to look around and see buildings and stuff that we had done as preparation before we landed. So. As soon as we landed and got off the plane, I knew exactly where I was. And um, so I turned to, to, to look over it, you know, where I knew Baghdad was in the distance, right? So this, mm-hmm. you know, this aircraft just took off, and it was really loud, and then all of a sudden it was it was super quiet. And it was like a scene out of a World War II movie. Baghdad was on fire in the distance. You could hear the tank treads going like in a World War II movie, and every once in a while, the you know, the big boom of the cannons that were going off. And uh, it was just one of those moments where it was like, "Whoa, I'm at a war. This is no this is this is wild." Were you afraid at all? No, no, no. It's just just one of those moments where it's like, "Okay, all right, here we are. Time to get to work." How long were you there for? Uh, for the initial invasion, let's see. For the invasion, I'm trying to remember when the and where we when we actually went over the berm, and then we came back in July. So we were was that six months or something? I guess total time in the Middle East, you know, leading up to the invasion, and then and then Iraq was uh, you know a year that we were over there. Um, but the actual, you know, that that first that first part of the invasion, I think it was like six months or four months or something. Were those six months, uh, six or four months, were they similar to other deployments you had been on, or did you feel like you were in a whole other world at this point? Oh no, I mean, it, I mean, it was a, I mean, it was an active war zone. So, I mean, it was, you know, we, we were driving across a bridge and a building blew up behind us. Um, you know, one one thing. It was definitely, uh, you know. It was definitely a little higher stress than anything else I'd ever done. No kidding. Um, were you were you working with other either special operations groups or like recon well, marines things like that? We we actually we we had gotten um, attached to the. Um, for, I mean, for lack of a better term, the special operations commander for 
for the theater, and so we were his content. So my team was his contingency force. So okay. what we'd do is we'd, we'd run out, we'd do, he'd be like, hey, you know, Jeff, I need you to go to this area of the city and tell me what's going on. And so we'd run out there. Or we had different assets um, that were coming in, and so we'd go up and we'd pick those guys up and uh, and bring them back for debriefings. Or, um, you know, it'd say, hey, we need you to, to QRF these guys because um, they need help. So we'd, we'd jet out and do that. And so um, so it was kind of like every day was a little bit different. Yeah, um, no kidding. So we'd, you know, essentially leave, the, you know, our, our Ford operating base, go out and work, and then come back. So, So from there... What was, did you go home after that or was there another deployment? I did. So, you know, we, we went back and we demobilized. And while I was, and while I was over there, we, you know, I ran into the guys that were part of the CT unit and they, you know, and they were like, Hey, we're looking, you know, we're looking for people because this, we don't think this is going away and, and, um, we're looking for people that can work with indigenous forces that will, that will help us hunt, um, HVTs, high value targets. And so at, at that point I was like, yeah, I'm very interested. And so they were like, okay. So I went home, demobilized. Three months later, I was back in Iraq with the, uh, with the CT unit. And what does CT stand for? Counter-terrorist. That. That is that was a little bit of a dumb question. Yep, that makes sense. Um, so what was what was it like working with that unit? It was, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was it was very well run. It was very well funded. It was very well um, managed. And so they, every all of the other American advisors that were there were very experienced. Um, and so very mature and um what we'd do is we'd specialize in working with indigenous forces so so it'd be small numbers of Americans working big numbers of indigenous forces. So Afghanistan probably the place that I worked the most. You know, in Afghanistan there'd be three or four Americans and we'd have, you know, five hundred Afghan commandos that we were lead training and advising and so we'd do everything from you know, we'd recruit these guys from, you know, out of the mountains. They'd come down. We'd run them through a vetting process. Then we'd run them through a condensed training cycle. Um, and then it was it was like, okay, get your rifle. And then about, you know, about uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the target packets would start coming down and we'd say, okay, get your rifle. We'd go through a planning process, and then we'd go out and assault targets. So it was pretty different than from when you were there for those initial four to six months? Absolutely, because the initial four to six months, I was surrounded by other guys just like me, right? So I was surrounded right. by Americans, and I knew what their training level was. And and then all of a sudden it was, I had, you know, I, I've got a group of guys that, you know, about half of them in the early days would be like, about half of them couldn't write their own name. You know, they were illiterate. Not that they were dumb, but they mm-hmm. were just, Un, uneducated and so and my survivability or, or the advisors all of us survivability very much was dependent on how much information we could cram between these guys ears and so 
because the you know because the target packets were coming down, and so and there were plenty of you know Taliban and Al Qaeda guys that were running around that we were you know that we were trying to get those guys off the battlefield. Absolutely. Was it around that time that you and forgive me because I will likely not pronounce his name right? Um, you met Mohammed Wali Taslim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was 2000. And, uh, let's see, I met Wally in 2003, 2004, and he was—I mean, like Wally was 18 years old at the time, I think. Okay, and then will you talk to me just a little bit about him and your experience with him, so that a little later on, when we move into things that are a little bit more recent, you can tell me how all that ties together as well, because. Sounds like you guys had a, you made a connection because he came back into your life at a, at a later time. Yeah, so he, he, um, yeah, I mean, he was just another face in the crowd for the, you know, for the first part of it. He was a young, young, aggressive guy. He's very charismatic. Um, he didn't speak any English back, or back in those days. And so at one point I used to be able to speak, um, passable Dari. They, they speak two languages in Afghanistan. They speak Dari and they speak Pashto. Um, at one point, I could speak passable Dari, and and um, and I I used to be able to speak pretty decent Pashto, and um, so much so that like on a lot of targets, uh, it would just be me. I didn't have an interpreter, and um, and so running these targets with my guys, and so um, so I met. Met Wally, he, you know, he's a rising star. The program that we had was a meritocracy. Um, so people were promoted based off of their merit of what, you know, their capabilities and their work ethic and their, and their, you know, their leadership. And so Wally was one of those, you know, rising stars because it didn't take very long to figure out that he's, very intelligent, very genuine, um, and a and a great leader. He's respected by all of the other soldiers that were in the that were in the unit that was there. And so as time progressed, you know, he later on became became a commander um inside the unit. And he was always pushing to learn new stuff. He was always asking for, you know, what's the new lesson today? He one of those guys that's just totally embraces constant improvement. And so, you know, and while he's, you know, he, he's, you know, he speaks great English now that he lives here in the U.S., but but while he was there, I mean, we just, and in the later, you know, probably the second half of the 12, 13 years that I was in the, in the counter-terrorist unit, we just, we became friends because there was a mutual respect, I mean, between the two of us. And, you know, we went on, you know, I don't know how many missions together. And so, and we just, you know, that friendship just kind of developed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, from from what I've heard, the people that you serve with end up becoming some of the best friends you've ever had. Yeah. I mean, we're, I mean, now, I, you know, Wally and I are very close. I love that. Um, so then what happened next? Uh, so, you know, I, I went back and forth, um, you know, in the, in the, you know, in that unit and was there for 12 or 13 years. 
And then towards the end of it, when I was there, at one point I was like the second or third most deployed guy in the in the uh, in the unit, and um, and I just I reached that point where I'd done, you know, it was like I, we, my wife and I started having kids. I had my first son; he was two years old um, on my on my last deployment. He's seven now, um, so he was two or three. Then and, and my wife was dropping me off at the airport because I was leaving again, and um, you know, and I was leaving, and, and so here's my little boy, he's, you know, he's sitting, you know, I started having kids late in life, later in life, and so here's my little boy, he's sitting in his car seat, and, and I'm like, hey, Papa's leaving, you know, and and he knew I was leaving again, and and um, he wouldn't look at me, and I was like, hey, I'm I'm leaving, give me a hug, you know, and he just sat there, and he's kind of downtrodden and looking down at the floor and and wouldn't look at me and and um it was that moment where i was like you know what this isn't fun anymore this sucks i'm leaving you know i'm leaving my son and 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 for what you know it's it's the war's not going to end i'm only getting older by that point my you know my body was pretty pretty busted up you know i'd broken my back and my leg and ripped my shoulder out and you know, lost most of the hearing in one of my ears, and 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 so it was. It was like, man, you know, what am I, what am I trying to prove? And so then I ended up going on another trip that ended up being like probably my closest call with death out of all of the trips, and um, and it was, and it was one of those where it's like, you know what, I, I, you know, when I came back and and the guys that were, you know, the commander of the unit was like, hey. Uh, you need a break. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I do. I need a break. And um, so that's when, that's actually, it's when I uh, ran back. And so Evan and I had been in 19th group out of Washington is where we'd first met. We'd done the Philippines together. Um, and then we'd been on the invasion together. And, um, and so then when I, I ended up doing some stateside training and um, that's where Evan and I, essentially reconnected and um, started plotting our escape from, you know, working with the U.S. government. And so and that's what later led to uh, Ready Man and Black Rifle Coffee and Rats and all of this other stuff. So how did, how did those things happen? Because that, I mean, to go from being in the military for so long to then starting all of these other really successful companies. I mean, how, how did that all start? Well, you know, Evan was kind of in the same boat as me. He, he had a little girl that was about, he, she's about the same age as my oldest. And, you know, when you start having kids later on in life, you know, it's one of those things that's like when you hit 40 or you get close to 40, you're you're kind of like okay I'm I'm older I'm not cool anymore I don't really care to be cool anymore so um, you know what can I do and then you have kids and you have this tremendous sense of responsibility of like gosh I, I you know I gotta what am I gonna do for these guys to ensure they're as as successful as can be in in life at least that's the way I looked at it and that's the way that Evan was looking at it and and so all of a sudden it was like you know carrying guns in the world was no longer really in, you know, no longer really one of those things that we were interested in doing anymore. One, because we had already done it for so long. And then two, 
It was, it was like, I had, for me, at least I can't speak for Evan, but for me, I checked every block. It's like everything that I ever wanted to do in the military and then some. I, I did. You know, I, I, I really feel like I had a complete, uh, you know, complete career, I guess, of sorts, um, in the, in the mill. Like, you know, I did helicopter assaults, like I did, I did eight ship helicopter assaults, you know, just huge massive assaults on, on areas all the way down to like me and two other guys in a, in a Toyota Corolla driving around in local garb, sneaking and peeking and, um, and I just, you know, and everything in between. And so I just, I really felt like I'd done everything that I ever really wanted to do in the military. And, and, you know, and at that point it was like, you know what, I, you know, I can't keep doing this forever because I'm getting old and I'm, and I'm getting broken and, um, and I don't know if I want to. So what's the next challenge? And, and so, you know, and Evan was feeling very much the same way. And, and, um, so we spun up a, we spun up a business that ended up, it didn't go anywhere. Um, but it was a tremendous, it was a tremendous learning, um, it was tremendous learning uh, opportunity. You know, we stood up. It was a crowdfunding. So at that time, crowdfunding was brand new, and it was called Twist Rate. And um, it was crowdfunding that was um, um, pro two A, you know, pro American. And um, and um, because you know, Kickstarter and Instagram, or not Instagram, Kickstarter and Indiegogo which were the two big daddies then wouldn't let you do any firearms related stuff. And so we were like, Hey, we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, it was, we, we learned a lot along the way, you know, made a lot of, you know, made a lot of mistakes, but those mistakes were, were actually learning opportunities. And so twist rate ended up folding. And, um, um, and about the time that it was starting to fold, we, you know, ready man was already chugging along. It was about, it was probably like three or four months old, and um, we got contacted by a buddy that said, "Hey, these guys are looking for um, somebody to build a curriculum for them." And I told them, "You guys are the ones to to do it," because at that point I had already written two books on military planning and all of that, and so um, so we started in uh, Ready Man, and then right at that same time, Evan had said. He's like, hey man, I'm gonna. I think we should start a coffee company. And I was like, okay. And he's always been a big coffee head and and um, loves coffee. And and I was like, all right, well let's do it. And so we launched this launched a coffee company. And 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 he, you know, the the brains, the power, the energy, the genius behind Black Rifle is is all Evan. And so, you know, and I was like a worker bee helping you know, behind the scenes and stuff, but, um, there for a little bit. And then, and then also at that same time, you know, we were looking for ways to pay the bills and stuff. I was like, Hey, I, you know, I'd already invented the rats tourniquet at that point. And so, and I, but I'd licensed it out to a defense contractor. So they had sold thousands of these things overseas, but I had stayed out of it because I didn't want there to be any, uh, conflict of interest with any of the stuff that I was, that I was doing. And so I just said, Hey, you guys take this and run with it. Well, about that time, that company was getting ready to sell. And, um, so I was like, Hey, I'm pulling this back. 
and uh and so I launched it domestically and, and at that time like nobody domestically was really using tourniquets at all. And so I released it and I was like, well, let's see if these things will sell here domestically because they'd already, you know, there were thousands of them in the Middle East and um, of my tourniquet. And so we, you know, we looked at it and I said, okay, well, I'm going to do this. You focus on that and I'm, I'm focused. I'm going to do this and ready man and, and help you with, with the coffee stuff, you know, started that thing out. And, um, and so I, you know, Working it at night, uh, you know, making tourniquets essentially, and, and it just started taking off. And so, like my work day would consist of, of essentially, you know, work all day, come home, see my boys, put them to bed at about, you know, eight or eight thirty. Then I'd get up, um, go to the shop, make tourniquets till about one a.m. Um, come back home. Um, go to bed, wake up at about 4.30, um, start hammering out emails and stuff for tourniquets or writing curriculum for Ready Man. Um, then um, about, you know, my boys start waking up at about 7, um, get them ready, help get them ready for school, you know, with their mom, and and, um, and then then get, get right back on the computer until I leave the house and then uh, do Ready Man stuff and then, and intermix in there, Evan and I would do black rifle stuff. Then I'd come home and and um, and then start cranking on, you know. And I did that for months and months and months and months, just making, you know, making tourniquets and uh, fighting with the patent office, and and then just learning how to, you know, to essentially figure out how how to get the word out on on with Ready Man and whatnot. And so, again, you know, a lot of lot of uh, stress but it was also it was like the constant and solving of the enigma of business is what I like to call it um, you know Conan the Barmerian had the enigma of steel I think we today have the enigma of business and um, and it's, it's actually it's a lot of fun to to work on that and so that's that's essentially where that all started so that stuff started taking on a life of its own and and it was like okay um, I'm not I'm not going back overseas. This is it, and um, here we go. How did How did you keep going? I mean, that's a that's an intense schedule, especially with having like not just your work. I mean, not that the work portion portion of it wasn't a huge deal, but also having kids and a wife. I mean, how did how did you do all of that? Five meter targets. <laughs> Understood. Yep. Great answer. <laughs> you know, hey, I've got to get these things boxed up and shipped out. Hey, I've got to get these so many of these things made. Hey, I've got to, you know, and rats is all like rats. It, it's funny as people, people will, you know, there's, you know, there's haters in any, in any industry, right? And, you know, and rats is no, you know, no exception there. And so, uh, some of the some of the people who like to throw barbs at me think that Rats Tourniquet is like some huge monster company, and it's like mm, no, Rats is like three dudes, you know, <laughs> and uh, and we're completely bootstrapped. It, you know, we've never taken any money or loaned any money or anything, so it's all you know, all my you know, all my efforts. Well, me and a couple of my guys' efforts of of uh, Pushing the pushing the thing forward, and we saw you know, and we saw rats worldwide now. So, 
I, I have one actually. We, um, it's with me at, at all times. So thank you for that. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. Um, so I know we're, uh, we're getting close on time here. We're a little bit over time, but do you have time for like two or three more questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this one's a little bit out of, no, it's very out of left field, but, um, but I would like to ask you, um, what was your lowest low and, and how did you, how did you get through it? Hmm. My lowest low, um, you know, I've been reduced down to essentially zero twice in my life. And what I mean by that is like financially, which is obviously is a big hit, you know, psychologically and mentally as well. You know, after, um, you know, like when I first came back from, you know, from my, uh, my mission, like I paid for my mission. I paid for all of it. I'd saved up my cash and every dime of that I was paid for by me. So all of that money I remember while I was going to training and stuff for the year, I'd saved all my money there to uh, pay for that. So then I remember coming home and it was like, okay, now what? I don't have any money. <laughs> I right. have nothing. And so, and, um, you know, being fiercely independent, I didn't want to ask my parents for money either. You know, of course they, they help support and stuff with, hey, you can sleep downstairs and stuff like that. But but essentially it was like one of those points where it was a, it was a little bit of a low point because um, it was like, man, what am I going to do now, you know? And, um, and so that that so that was there, and then um, and then after my first divorce, um, I lost. You know, I lo- it was one of those rude awakenings in the legal system. You know, there's a saying that says, um, "What do you call a, a Democrat who gets mugged? A Republican? What do you call a Republican that goes through the legal system? A Libertarian?" And so I had uh, I went through the legal system. I went through a horrific divorce and. Um, and essentially lost everything in the divorce. Then I won the divorce, but then still didn't get anything just based off of the legal system that can only do so much, right? So once again, like I found myself, my, my dad had a shop and I was living at his shop because I had nothing. So I'd just gotten off of active duty and uh, was waiting to get a job. Um, and so I remember sitting in my dad's, you know, shop above you know, above the garage where they, at that time, they were doing like auto body and stuff and, you know, and it's really quiet and sitting there going, how in the world did I get here? It's like, I'm, I'm a Green Beret and I just got off active duty and I've got all of this experience. And now all of a sudden it's like, I don't have a penny to my name and um have, and I'm so destitute that essentially I'm living in a garage and I was living in the office space of what was the, of the, was the garage, you know, there's a mattress on the floor and the, you know, and, and that was, and that was about it. It's just like lost, lost everything. So, you know, and, you know, you talk about the lowest of low, and then that was one of those moments too. And then having gone through such a bad divorce, it was also like one of those things where it's like, man, is there, is there something wrong with me? Did, you know, am I dumb? And like, you know, and you kind of start questioning yourself, but, you know, I guess, in some ways, it's like those are the defining moments of your life where it's like, okay, now that you've been knocked down, what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to get back up and try again, or are you going to let it get the better of you? Of course. 
so what I mean obviously you got back up and what was what was your next move from there well I, I got back up and then you know a few months later I actually I got hired by the uh, by the uh, sheriff's office and um, um, then you know and then I had a you know and then I had a job and I was I was working down at the corrections facility So along those lines, I mean, in in those couple months, because it's, I mean, you'd been on active duty, you'd been married, I mean, even outside of the marriage portion of it, just being on active duty and then coming back home to civilian life, that in and of itself without any other stressors is is a lot to handle. Was that, I mean, how, how did you handle that piece of it? Uh, you know, five meter targets. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's like focus. If you try to if you try to if you think about too much of it, it'll just it'll overwhelm you. So it was like, okay, what do I have to do now? Well, I've got to, you know, I've got to figure out how I'm going to, uh, you know, I, I got to put some food in the refrigerator. Okay, how am I going to do that? You know, and just. And just kind of going from there, you know, it was, I ended up, I, you know, I think in the interim job, I, you know, I ended up doing construction. I was like literally with a shovel and shoveling concrete into, uh, into the molds there for a while. And so, you know, it was like, well, how the mighty have fallen, <laughs> you know, it started to live from, you know, from, you know, you know, top, you know, to, being a Green Beret to standing there with a shovel and shoveling concrete in the, in the molds. So, you know, it's it a bit of humble pie, but that's, yeah, you know, it's, it's good to get that once in, once in a while in life. Not too often, but it's, you know, it's good to get, have some of those instances once or twice in your life. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's a lot of what we've been talking about in regards to it. It builds a whole lot of character. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could instill one trait in the world, what would it be? One trait in the world. You know, I think probably, I think probably, you know, and this is going to sound touchy-feely, but I, but it, you know, as I've gotten older in life, I guess, I look at it where it's like if I could, you know, and I don't even know if this is a trait, but I would say service, um, you know, helping helping your fellow man helping your fellow human beings, woman, whatever. Um, simply because you, you you know, and I heard all this a lot when I was younger and then the Boy Scouts, you're you know, do a good do a good deed daily and you know, and you hear a bunch of the uh you know, the self help folks will say stuff like that and you know, but but as I've gotten older, I've realized that it's like there's there's so much underwritten truth in in that in helping other people or serving your fellow man. You know, and, and essentially, I look back on my life. That's essentially what I did my whole life was, you know, liberate the oppressed. And so, and and you get a tremendous, you know, you get a, you get tremendous benefit out of it that you know, in some instances, will take you a lifetime to realize. And what I mean by that, realize the benefit that you've gotten out of it. But I see that now with business stuff. I, I don't believe in competition. I don't believe competition is a thing. I don't believe that it's a zero-sum game. 
people that are direct competitors to me um, in in um, you know even with the tourniquets or with uh, you know the survival emergency preparedness space like in Ready Man. I mean, we help all those guys. If they come to us and they ask help and they're genuine, we genuinely help them. And, and there's a lot of people that, are, that have asked me, they're like, why do you do that? They're direct, you're helping your competition. And, and, and I'm always like, look, the ocean is so big and so deep that if him and I or he and I or she and I gather just like 1% between the two of us of the potential market, then everybody's doing cheetah flips. And so, and it's, and as they, it is this other person who, you know, you're calling competition, they're going to learn stuff that you don't know. And you're going to learn stuff you, they don't know. And if you share that information, then the tide ends up rising all ships. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. And, and so consequently we help other people whenever and however we can. And so that's where I'd go, you know, if, if there's a trait that I'd put out there, I'd say, yeah, service. Because if we can, if we can get just a few people, like I had a, I had a, a friend come by. He's a friend now, but he teaches stop the bleed, and he's big on teaching kids, you know, how to stop the bleed, and he uses my tourniquet um, for that. And and um, and I was like, hey, you know, the, the, and he's he looks at it, and, you know, he's very black and white kind of guy and he's like yeah we're going to help save some kids and I was like you know what we're going to do here is by teaching kids to uh, help the people that are around them teaching kids to be first responders we're teaching them to serve others and be prepared to serve others and, and the trickle down effect is we're changing culture where it, it used to be a thing of people didn't people didn't do anything they just waited for the ambulance and now that's that's a non-starter. So we've got this culture of helping each other, and the trickle down will be is it won't just end with, it won't just end with you know in crisis where there's an active shooter or a car wreck, but now all of a sudden that attitude should be able to trickle down to where helping to build the community and helping to build the youth and helping to build our families, and so which ultimately creates you know this this trait of service of helping each other which. Ultimately, the tide will rise all ships and will end up being a better, you know, community or group of human beings on this on this blue marble. Oh, definitely, definitely. And along those lines, um, how is it that Wally now works at Black Rifle? So he he uh, he came over on a special immigrant visa. He he survived five direct assassination attempts against his life and his family family said you've got to you've got to go and um so he came over because he you know the taliban he was on the taliban death list um um so he immigrated to the u.s had a horrible time his first year here um and then we he actually found me uh through one of the live shows that i was doing and um I'd actually heard that Wally had been killed in, in an ambush. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking and one of my guys comes out and, you know, we just finished the, uh, the live show and one of my guys came out and said, Hey, there's some guy by the name of Muhammad Tassalim that says he knows you that's on Facebook. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay. I wonder who this is. 
well, I didn't. I don't know Wally as Muhammad. I know him as Wally, and so right. And he's got that very uncharacteristic long hair, and so as soon as I saw him, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's Wally!" I thought he was dead, and so I reached out to him, and he was like, "Hey, I'm I'm living in Virginia with my family," and I was like, "You're kidding me!" And he was like, "No," and I was like, "Well, hey man, come out to Utah and visit," and so he. You know, we flew him out here, and he stayed at the house for five days. And I was like, hey, what do you think of Utah? And he's like, oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's very, you know, the, the Salt Lake Valley is very similar to the Cobble Valley. Very similar. Same same climate, same season, same snow in the winter, hot in the summer, surrounded by mountains. Um, obviously, less vegetation in Afghanistan. But um, he's like, yeah, it's beautiful. And I was like, okay, well, um, I spoke to Evan and and we've got a job for you at Black Rifle Coffee. Go home, get your family, and uh, come to Utah. And so um, me and another business partner arranged for his housing, uh, Jason. So Jason's my co-author on um, Black Autumn, the novel that we that we wrote, Black Autumn. We've mm-hmm. actually written three novels now, four then the three autumns for the Black Autumn universe, and then um, – and the sequel's coming out next, uh, probably next fall, and that's in the editing stages right now. So, anyways, Jason and I arranged for his housing, and Wally came out with his six boys, and um, um, so he's working here now, and, and he's the same old Wally. He helps with Ready Man stuff. He helps with Raps Tourniquet, and then he um, he essentially runs him and another guy who's a former ranger run uh, essentially the maintenance on the building. So, and Wally loves it because he's constantly learning new stuff from, you know, electricity to plumbing to, you know, drywalling to maintenance to, you know, and, and all of the above. And, and actually, Wally and that other guy, Bryce, are the ones that um, are the, I mean, they, they're the ones that built the, um, the training facility that we have there at Ready Man now, too. Wow. That's awesome. I, I really love that. When I when I was doing research on you and I found his name, I just I had to ask about it because that's it's just really wonderful. I mean, not not everybody would do something like that. Yeah, well, Wally's Wally's an exceptional guy. So, and we we actually have from the from the counter terrorist unit, you know, on from the Afghan side, we actually have twelve guys. Um, that were in that unit that all live in Salt Lake now with their families, and about six of them six of them work at Black Rifle, and then the other six have other jobs in the valley. Wow, that's that's really that's something that's wonderful. Um, so two final questions. One of them is, what piece of advice has impacted you the most? Uh, you know, I'd have to say. Um, piece of advice that's impacted me the most. You know, probably the piece of advice that's impacted me the most is don't quit. You know, just keep keep chugging on. I mean, and that doesn't mean blindly keep doing something that you know is failing. Um, but um, you know, sometimes when we when we learn how to fail, we actually learn how to not quit. If that makes sense, and so. Um, you know, in special operations, every special operations force has their own selection process. And in that selection process, 
they're not looking for the strongest, the fastest, the the smartest. They're they're looking for who's not going to quit. That's you can you can teach somebody to do all the skills and all of that, but what you can't teach is that intestinal fortitude of of not quitting when it gets hard, when it you know when it gets dark and when it gets scary. Who's going to who's going to push forward and and who's going to curl up in a ball? And so in special operations. That's all of their, you know, the SEALs do it with BUDS, you know, Special Forces does it with, the, you know, assessment selection, you know, the PJs do it with the pipeline, um, you know. So all of that is they're just figuring out, okay, who's not going to quit? So I think probably the single piece of advice is don't quit, you know, keep keep chugging forward. I like that a lot. So final question What's next? Where can, I mean, I will obviously link all of your companies in the description I write up about you, but um, how can people find you? What's coming up next? Um, The best way people can find me is readyman.com. That's, you know, that's that's my day-to-day baby. And then uh, Rats Medical is another way, and then also blackautumn.com. Black Autumn is our series of, is novel one in a series of novels that we're writing that is, uh, you know, it's prepper fiction, it's post-apocalyptic world. Um, it's a great read, but, um, and it's a lot of fun. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride, but it, it's also was, was written to make people think, you know. And so I, I would say Black Autumn is probably, you know, we're on Amazon and, um, here probably in the next week we'll have those books up in the Ready Man store as well. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, you're an incredible person and you've done so, so many things and, um, and you continue to do so many things. So, so thank you for being here today. Oh, my, my pleasure. Anytime.